1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Kushnama is unique, literally. Only one copy of the Epic of Kush exists, sitting in the British Library, Hardly anything is known about its author, Iran Shah. It features a quite villainous protagonist, the Tust warrior Kush, who carves a swath of destruction across the region. And the tale spans nearly half the world, with episodes in Spain, the Maghreb, India, China, and even Korea. It was that last reference that encouraged academics in Korea to study the Kushnameh and bring Kaveh Hemat to do its first ever English translation, published by the University of California Press earlier this year. Kaveh Hamad is his professor, professional faculty, In history at Benedictine University, a scholar of world history and Islamic culture, and director of the NEH funded Katainame translation project. He completed his PhD at the University of Chicago in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations in 2014. His research focuses on interaction between the Islamic world and East Asia and the importance of this interaction to Islamic political thought and pre modern global political history. Today, Kavene discusses this unique document, the Kushname, and the cultural and political context behind its writing. So, Kaveh, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast today. You know, perhaps I'd like to start with what exactly is the Kushname, the epic of Kush? Uh, what is this work? When was it written? Um, where did you find it?
1: Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity oh, to talk about this. Um, yeah, I think you started with with the hardest question, or at least I'm inclined to take it that way. Uh, it's so yeah, it's an epic, right? Um, and I think we can say that pretty, you know, pretty unproblematically. But uh, it's so it's a Persian epic written in uh, between what was it eleven oh eight and eleven eleven, um, common era, and uh, it it's an epic of an antihero, right? The the title character and the principal character in the epic is a really bad guy, and uh, so it was because the Epic, because one of the important settings in the Epic is this insular paradise, this Island called Basila, or we don't really know how, how the vowels are, you know, were meant to be pronounced. Um, so it could be Basila, Bosila, but anyway, um, bis- I've, I've used Basila cause that just seems easier uh, as it's float off the tongue better. Um, because uh, one of the main settings in this epic is this insular paradise, uh, Basila, which is a corruption of Sila, the uh, dynastic, an older dynastic name for Korea, um, it attracted the attention of researchers in Korea, um, uh, Professor Hisu Lee, uh, namely. And uh, so he started, uh, he had a big uh, Korean government funded project to, you know, to research this epic and uh, I was invited on to translate it. They wanted to produce, they, they produced a Korean translation of parts of it. Um, and they wanted to produce a full English and also Chinese translation. So, um, yeah, so I was in, invited to, to do this. Uh, uh, I think mostly because of my interest in uh, East Asia-Islamic uh, world interactions. Um, it's my first attempt at translating something uh, anywhere near this size. And uh, yeah, and that's 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 how i got started on it
0: What's iran or i guess persia what's this part of the world like when this epic was written kind of kind of what's the state of its culture its politics kind of kind of of what is the (laughs) i I guess what's the state of persia at this time
1: sure sure um so You know, so, of course, I mean, one thing I'm sure a lot of readers or listeners will be uh, familiar with is that, um, you know, national boundaries, national borders don't look anything, don't exist back then. Right. Um, But there are regional identities. And, uh, you know, there's a good case to be made that some elements of, you know, what eventually became Iranian national consciousness are rooted in. Uh, the Sasanian Empire uh, that was around from the 200s to the 600s AD, right? So in the 1100s, after the Arab conquest or the Islamic conquest uh, eliminated the Sasanian Empire and took over a lot of the better territories of the Roman Empire, um, you have this big, uh, you know, in some ways cosmopolitan um, empire with Arabic as this new language and it it has governed this big area, right? The Caliphate for now hundreds of years. And in the 900s, you start to get, um, you know, a political or a resurgence, resurgence of, you know, what you could call Iranian, for lack of a better term, Iranian political identity, right? Um, people who local rulers, the Caliphs are getting weaker. Local rulers start, you um, claiming to be, you know, descended from, uh, you know, the Sasanian Kings and Ferdowsi's great Epic of Kings. The Shahnameh is written, um, it's completed in 1010 and the Persian language, new Persian, um, is coming back into use, right? So they started writing Persian, the Persian language, a form of Persian, they're different Persian languages. They started writing it in the Arabic alphabet, um, with a lot of Arabic loan words. Actually, interestingly, the oldest uh, new Persian document we have um, was a letter written by Jews uh, in Central Asia. So, you know, we know that it was, you know, it was not just the language of Muslims and not just, you know, well, Iranians is obviously a a flexible term. Certainly Jews could be Iranian uh, back then or Persian speakers, Um, but it wasn't just Zoroastrians. And so by uh, now, fast forward 100 years to the 1100s and you've got the Seljuk Empire, right? Um, a dynasty with origins in Central Asia, right? You speak Turkic languages uh, has come in and basically, and there had been Turkic military slaves or slave soldiers before who came in and their, you know, their freedmen descendants uh, became powerful rulers. But now you've got uh, the Seljuk state, big, you know, empire takes over kind of the whole Middle East. And that's the political environment he's writing in. Um besides that I mean I don't know is that the political political environment's important here because epics this epic tradition is highly political um besides that I mean you're looking at uh, a period when um you, you're passing from uh, an era when uh Islam and the states that govern the Islamic world have this really clear connection to uh the community of Muhammad and his followers um, you're going from that kind of a situation to one where they really need to, you know, redefine and and create now, um, you know, an Islamic state, right, as it were, from scratch, right? Uh, you don't have people who can say, oh, I'm a descendant of, you know, so-and-so going back to Muhammad. Um, you can't have people who can claim to be caliphs. Um, And so there's all these attempts to define what is, you know, to, to write about justice and governance and what is a just society and, um, to kind of recover the bases of, you know, identify the basis of spiritual or, you know, religious authority, right. Um, religio, political authority, of course, they're all mixed up, uh, and of course, at the same time, right? That's you know, that's uh, what you could say is Iran and Central Asia. And by the way, when I'm talking about Iran here um, or Persia, Persia would be just kind of southwestern Iran, right? But the, you have the Iranian plateau, right, which is basically the modern day country of Iran. You have Iraq. Um, the geographers back then used to refer to it as the two Iraqs, meaning what we now call Iraq, or most of most of what now what we now call Iraq, and Kind of, I think Northwestern Western Iran was the other Iraq, right? So, um, and then you have, uh, or Persian speaking Iraq is the way they describe it, A- 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 Ajam. And then you have uh, present day Afghanistan and present day Uzbekistan in that area, Tajikistan, right, Turkmenistan, um, Central Asia. So all of that is the is the area we're talking about when we talk about. Um, The eastern territories of the Caliphate and the area where the Persian language is being revived. Um, And then, of course, within, you know, within a couple hundred years, Delhi becomes a major, you know, starts to be a major center of Persian literary production, Delhi in South Asia. Um, So, yeah. um, And, I mean, putting this in a wider Asian context, of course, you can talk about uh, the Song Dynasty's uh, economic boom. And uh, there is, you know, of course, maritime trade in this period is really famous. But there's also overland trade um, between the northern Song and its neighbors in Central Asia. So, yeah, how's how's that for a setting?
0: And there's a lot there that I want to get into. Um, But maybe let's start with the idea that, you know, you're kind of talking about this is the emergence of um you can call it persian you can call it iranian like an identity forming and one it seems like this is uh, the epic of kush is trying to create this kind of mythical history for for that society and i wonder if you might talk about what i I guess what is this kind of history the epic is trying to create
1: yeah okay that gets complicated so first off yeah well first off (coughs) sorry I, mythic is you know this is of course a, a term we apply now and in some ways um, in some ways people back then did think of some of these old stories as myths or at least as unreliable um, but it, it was very much understood as real history right maybe not the story of Kush that might have been debated but the main kings in the Persian epic of kings the um I mean there's part of this, yeah, they're, they're as real as the biblical prophets, right? They're in the distant past, right? But um, yeah, and of course, you know, in a in a Abrahamic, you know, monotheistic framework, you can't, you know, of course, the biblical prophets are real, right? So, um, you know, King Solomon, right? So they're one of the ways that uh, people. But this question of you know how reliable are these old stories is a live one, right? So, um, one of the ways that uh, people sort of generate and renegotiate this Iranian identity, um, in this time is, uh, by sort of looking at the, the Kings that are supposedly the great ancestors, political, spiritual, or, or otherwise of, uh, the, this Persian imperial tradition and trying to line them up chronologically with, uh, the Abrahamic religion, sort of historical accounts, the biblical tradition, the Quranic tradition, um, where 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 is Jamshid relative to Solomon, right? Um, what prophets were around when he was alive? Was he in the time of Abraham? Was he in the time of you know of Noah, um, and and so on, right? So uh, so there you know whether you, you can think of them as you know there's certainly this doubt about them, right? But they weren't treated as sort of the separate domain of fiction, right? They were they were real people, but maybe doubtful, right? Maybe doubtful, and yeah
0: um well let's talk about kind of one of these characters then you know you're you're the protagonist of the Kushnameh. um kush you know he is a he is a character (laughs) to put it lightly i mean i mean he's 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 physically distinct i mean with with his with his tusks um he's not a virtuous character to put it mildly um why do you think the story makes him one of its central characters. And I mean and, and and that could tie to the historical aspect of it, but I guess why why put Kush front and center?
1: Well, and that's that's I think the the $60,000 question. Um, because you know, if you if you look at the Shahnameh and you look at um you know, what one of the a, a lot of classical Persian literature, a lot of the epic traditions specifically is taking these characters from, let's say the narrative world of the Shahnameh and writing different stories about them. Right. Um, And those could be heroic epics like the Epic of Gashasp, right. Who's a hero who fights dragons and kills, you know, giants and monsters and enemies on the battlefield. Um, they could be more in a romance sort of mold, right? So and um, Shirin, uh, you know, the story of Chosron Shirin becomes uh, a whole epic that a later poet writes. Um, but they're they are not anti-hero stories, right? That's, that's not really something we have more than maybe, you know, one real other example of uh, that I'm aware of. And uh, yeah, you know, it's one theory is that this epic originally started out as stories that kind of delegitimized or demonized the Kushan empire who are enemies of the Sasanians back in the, you know, the, the 300s. Um, and the, uh, you know, the, the story originated there and fast forward 700 years later, right. To the 1100s. And there's this, you know, this vogue for, finding these old stories and kind of modernizing them, right? Rewriting them in verse, uh, in new Persian. And that, you know, basically what the author had was this old story that other people hadn't written before. And he's like, okay, here's, here's something fresh. Here's something new. Um, you know, let's, let's write this one. Um, but there's other elements of it, right. That don't match, you know, that, that I don't, I don't think are explained by that theory. They're not necessarily incompatible, but they're not explained. Right. So Kush, spends uh, maybe two thirds, a little under two thirds of the Epic as ruler in the East. Um, But then there's a later part where he's ruler in the West, right? Where um, he becomes the King of, of Andalus, which is like basically Spain, Iberia, Portugal, um, as well as North Africa, right? So um, is that just an attempt to reconcile the biblical Kush, right? Father, I think of Nimrod uh, with this other, kushan figure right what's going on here um so and i don't think that just explaining it in terms of the sources is really satisfactory because i I think the author has a little bit of a, a bigger project here um with exploring the meaning of uh epic of the epic tradition of heroism right of kingship uh and and other themes right how does somebody become evil right where does this you know this just incredibly evil figure you know why is he like that um why are there monsters so Yeah.
0: So, 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 and and this is a good segue to kind of my my next question, which is,
1: um, but.
0: I mean, these kind of discussions of where's evil come from, um, what does it mean to be to be a ruler, to be a king, um, you know, what do you think? What was the epic designed to kind of give these moral lessons to? Maybe "moral lessons" is too strong a term, but kind of these these moral ideas, these political ideas, to its readers. So, so it, it wasn't just pure entertainment listen to all these historical battles, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think there's, it's interesting because my feeling about this translating or reading it and translating it was that it almost has kind of the pacing of, uh, you know, almost a high fantasy, right. Of, we're, we don't know what's going to happen next. Right. I mean, I think there's actually a, 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 you could you could argue that there's a pretty substantial building of suspense, um, I think that maybe almost comes out clearer in a prose, you know, paragraph format, prose translation than in the verse, but I think it comes across in the verse as well. Um, And I mean, that's something we'd say about, uh, you know, about uh, the Shahnameh, right, that Ferdowsi is a consummate storyteller. Um, So I'm going to... I'm going to give this annoying academic answer and, and say that uh, these things are all kind of really tied together, actually, right. That you can't, you can't separate, you know, the narrative art from, from the morals, right. The aesthetics and the, the moral lessons are, you know, in, inextricably tied. Um, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is I think from that angle uh, I think more so than is the case probably anywhere else in the Epic tradition, you um, Shah. uh, by the way, I didn't talk about the author's name, right? But we don't actually know for sure who wrote it. There's there's been there's some doubt as as to whether Idan Shah is actually the author, and his name is spelled three different ways in uh, in the four manuscripts of the one book that um, that names him. Uh, anyway, with with that. Uh, uh, bearing that in mind um, I think more than anywhere else in the epic tradition you've seen, you see in Idan Shah this interest in uh, science basically right and um, what makes a you know an organism like a biological organism develop in a certain way right um, why you know why is a monster a monster right uh, but I think that builds on this other discussion you know why are fish fish why are birds birds uh, this question of nature's right if, if a person having a fundamental nature or character that um, they tend not to deviate from right they tend to i mean that's that's i think sort of the main you know the main thing that we see going on here right the main sort of uh, dramatic axis let's say dramatic structure at the beginning is you have these you know kush and the descendants of Zahak right who is the most evil king in the Shahnameh and the jamshidians right descendants of jamshid uh descendants and followers of jamshid the glorious sun king who falls from grace because he claims to be divine um yeah so i i think it's you know this is something that scholarship will need to explore but i think that's that's kind of what this epic's about is you know why do we treat some people as fundamentally good right and maybe not just people maybe social groups right um
0: You know, just because you mentioned the author, uh, I mean, do we know anything about about Shah, the the poet who who wrote the epic?
1: Really not a lot. Um, I mean, he dedicates this to uh, his his, you know, the Seljuk ruler, uh, Muhammad ibn Malik Shah. Um, and, you know, he he just just from the invocation, from the preface to the epic, you get the sense that he's been there under. You know, in the court of the Seljuks and the court, the courtly world of the Seljuks for you know for some time, um, and he wrote an epic of Bahman. Um, there is an extant Bahmanname, an epic of Bahman, who is, you could describe him as an antihero, but nowhere near on the level of Kush uh, He's not evil in that way. He's he's maybe more just misguided, um, vengeful. And there is again some doubt as to whether the extant Bahmannama is the one that he wrote. So uh, it's yeah, we don't really know a lot else about him.
0: So I, I want to take a different tack with this next question. Um, you know, the book covers a wide geographic area. I mean, you mentioned it, it deals with China, it deals with um, it deals with Korea, or some version of that. Um, it deals with north africa it deals with spain um and i guess first of all like is is that kind of wide geographic area is that is that unique to the kushnama and even if it's not i mean would we have expected readers to know a lot about i guess regions as far afield as korea and spain
1: it it depends on the reader um of course uh And it depends on um, what we mean by knowing. That's that's a great academic answer, isn't it? Um, but no, I, I mean, somebody who had read, uh, who was interested in the subject of geography, certainly could have found information about Korea, but it would be very vague, uh, right? It would be okay. There's there's this place somewhere beyond China where merchants go and settle, and they don't come back, right? Well, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like a, a myth of paradise, right? That sounds like a traveler's tale. Um, but it's very possible that, uh, you know, actual traveler's lore, traveler's tales uh, did bring back something a little bit more specific than that, right? Oh, yeah, there's a king there. His name is such and such. And that doesn't always make it into the geographies. Um, Spain, much closer, right? Spain is, you know, there's, you know, of course, there's uh, uh, at this point, we've gone from a caliphate to, you uh, to um you know kind of small uh kingdoms in spain right and it's got a really long presence of arabic islamic culture uh and it's you know one thing that i notice uh you know does is he seems to have really mined the the geographies or just the geographical lore that people knew right geographical knowledge that he had or that others had for Pretty specific uh, place names in in Iberia, right? So, um, he specifically, I think, seems to to identify places that were just beyond the frontiers of the Islamic world, right? the The furthest region, reaches of historical regions of uh, Muslim rule, and identifies those as the places that Kush goes to conquer. Um, so, for example, he uh, he goes to Jaka, that's mentioned a few times, right? Jaka is. Um, a principality, kind of on the edge of the Pyrenees. Um, he mentions Basque country a few times, and then places that are more mythical in character. Right? There's a land of the beauties. Right. So what's that? Uh, you know, that's that's pretty vague and hard to identify. The king's name is Farouk, right? Which is a you know a nice Arabic name. Um, but uh, but it's it's really interesting. You know, it's an interesting question about what he's doing with these names, right? Is he trying to show off his erudition of like, look, I know these, you know, exotic place names that you don't know. Is he picking places that don't have Arabic names and are well outside uh, the domains of, sorry, the the kind of um, sphere of Islamic rule uh, in order to identify, to sort of say that Kush is going further, conquering further than... Um, you know, the Arab conquerors, the Umayyads had conquered, is he picking non-Muslim names as a way of, you know, creating a kind of, uh, as a kind of antiquarianism, right? These, is there a sense that these are sort of exotic or foreign names and they'll sound more, I don't want to say primitive, but more old, maybe right. Older names, um, than if he identifies places that are more familiar, right? There's a kind of exoticism there. So, um, but I think there's a strong sense that he's using this, uh, you know, this geographical knowledge to, for the purpose of characterization, right? Um, Interestingly, his knowledge of, uh, you know, his knowledge of China and other places is less, but um, he doesn't have as many specific place names within China. Although of course he has Chang'an, you know, the big, Tang Dynasty capital, um, which is no longer the capital in this time, um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a world where some of his readers at least will recognize these names. I mean, you you got to assume that he's speaking to, he's talking to people who, you know, who aren't going to be. I mean, we just kind of have to assume that, right? We don't know, but we know that they're in the geographies, uh, so they c- could very well have known known these place names. Yeah.
0: Um. And and what about? What about Song China? I mean you you mentioned kinda of Song China in in your introduction. I mean were there I guess were there close connections between uh between I guess Persia slash Iran and and China at this at this time?
1: Um Yeah. I mean, again, it's different types of connections. And I think the nature of the connections is the really interesting question because, so going back to the Abbasid period, right. To this from 750 to the 900s, you actually have very direct embassies right between the Tang dynasty, the Tang court, and the Abbasids and the, um, the Indian ocean route is, you know, is the big route of access there because, um, Baghdad is, you know, has pretty good access to the Indian ocean and, uh, you know, the, you know, sort of area around, uh, Guangzhou and then Chuanzhou further up is, you know, is flourishing economic area. Um, in the Song dynasty, you don't have those direct embassies. There's first off, you know, where China is and where, um, where in the Islamic world they might be communicating with changes, right? Um, so you have Northern Song embassies with the Karakhanids, right? Who are a central Asian power. Um, and, you know, so the interesting question is how, you know, how is that kind of contact um, and just contact contacting goods, right, movement of goods going to play out differently from an embassy going through the Indian Ocean, right? Um, and, I mean, certainly this is a period where... China starts to really become proverbial in Persian literature, right? You start getting a lot of references to China as um, a land of master craftsmen, as uh, a place that, um, you know, one one book that's been translated, Accounts of China in India, uh, really, you know, describes in some detail uh, the services provided by the Chinese state, right? Um, that's in the 800s, but, uh, you know... <coughs> I think that, that same kind of idea persists and develops. And in the epic tradition in particular, right, and especially in the later epics uh, after the Kushname, right, the Alexander epics, um, China comes to have an increasingly prominent role, right? Um, that really takes off during the Mongol period. But in, in this period, it's, you know, I think it's already, you can already see signs of it. And I think um, one interesting thing is that there's a reference to Basila not having been conquered in thousands of years. And that's, uh, I think a pretty specific piece of, you know, um, bearing in mind it's speaking about a, a place that would be identified more with Korea than with China. Um, I think it's a it's a fairly significant piece of China lore. Let's say, right, the image of China that you see uh, attested in much later texts. So. Um, Uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, right? Because this, you know, this idea that Song China was producing almost industrial levels of iron uh, by, you know, using burning coal, right? I think that that finding was found to be probably overstated, but it was, you know, an economic powerhouse. They were burning coal, uh, you know, and producing large amounts of iron Um, porcelain is becoming a really big international good and that's affecting ceramic production all over the Islamic world. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, and also right in the, in, you know, Quanzhou and other cities uh, I think Hangzhou in this period uh, and other cities around kind of the Southeast coast in Guangzhou, there's uh, an increasing presence of, um, of, a Muslim diaspora in China. Um, and they're, they're, you know, becoming exam candidates. They're sort of becoming part of Chinese society. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty, pretty important, right. They're they're pretty important there. And that's that kind of group is mediating contact with, uh, you know, with the Islamic world.
0: So I want to, I think, end our interview by kind of noting, I, I I guess noting something up front, which is this work has never been translated before now. There's like one copy in the British Library. Um, this only, this translation only kind of came about because it, because it mentions Korea. The Korean academics are very interested in translating this, but it hadn't been translated before now. You know, how much of, Persian slash Iranian slash just history from this region throughout the Middle Ages, which I know is a contested term. Um, you know, how much of this history do we know about? How much of it do you think is still understudied, little understood?
1: Um, it's a great question. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's always more to be done. Um, and you're looking at broadly, right, when you're talking about Asian history, you're talking about, you know, most of the world that has received you know, surely less than half of the, you know, the time and, uh, you know, resources that the study of medieval Europe has received, right? So, um, of course, there's a huge amount more to learn. Um, You know, it's not something where we can say we don't know anything, right? I mean, we have certainly uh, the broad outlines of history, you know, political history and, you know, different aspects of material history for a lot of places. Um, The history of contact, I think, though, is, you know, is really... Um, And the history of the bigger picture, I think, is something that um, really we know way too little about, Uh, you know, how do all of these different regions interact? Um, What are the consequences? What's the significance of that interaction? Uh, You know, I mean, there's somebody I think recently uh, was awarded a a writing grant to write a history of the Seljuk state. Right. So we haven't had a, a focused history on the Seljuk empire since you know, I, I don't know when, right? But there hasn't hasn't been one written recently, and uh, you know, it's there's also kind of a pen. You know, there's a lot of just literary treasures to be uncovered there, right? I mean, this is this is one of them. I mean, it's just a, it's a weird, interesting book with, uh, you know, a, a character who uh, is you know, is really unlike uh, most of the epic heroes, and that results in a plot and a type of story that's really unlike most of the epic stories we see. And um, I think most of the, you know, most of the action, as it were, is in the uh, the dramatic development, the storytelling, and not, you know, not just wordplay, right, which is hard to, to translate. Yeah, I mean, there's also just this, this rich literary tradition that, um, you know, hasn't, apart from this idea that you know there's sort of a classical period and a post-classical period and a, a sort of literary canon that's developed and the kushanam is certainly outside of that literary canon
0: so i think that's a that's a great place to end our conversation with uh with Kaveh him uh, i am sorry again because i pronounced your name incorrectly <laughs> um let's try that again uh one second um Thank you for listening to our conversation with Kaveh Hemat, uh, translator of the Kushnameh, the Persian Epic of Kush the Tust. Kaveh, I actually have, let's say, two more final questions for you, which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
1: Great. Um, so this is uh, available uh, in online bookstores. Uh, you know, you can get it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, all those kinds of things. There's an ebook format and a paperback version available. It's only... What is it? The paperback price, I think, in the US was about $25. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's affordably priced. Um, and, you know, you can ask your library to get a copy as well. Uh, let's see. And for me, um, I mean, this, you know, interestingly, this was almost kind of, this is not the direction I intended to go uh, in my research, because I'm, primarily a historian interested in interaction between East Asia and the Islamic world. And one kind of hurdle I hit working on the the book of China, the Khatai as a different book, uh, you know, that I wrote my dissertation on and, you know, was working on after that years after that was the epic tradition seems to be a really important area of evidence. Um, but I, you know, I need to learn it better. I need to learn to read it better. So um, this was almost kind of a detour from that. And, and, You know, right now and in the near future, I'll be going back to working on just a variety of sources, writing about uh, the process of contact between East Asia and the Islamic world. There is, you know, uh, you know, it's to put it briefly, um, we know that people talked, right, that news traveled and that information about distant places, you know, was carried around. Uh, along with the goods, right? Along with silks and porcelains and things like that. Um, we know that people knew about, you know, the forbidden city and the Chinese emperor and things like that. Uh, but what does, uh, you know, what does that do for the politics, right? What, how did that affect the political history of the regions uh, that were in contact, right? Um, so really trying to write world history, um you know, to, to write about East Asian Islamic, Islamic world contact as a kind of world historical topic. Um, and, uh, hopefully, uh, I'll have, uh, a book coming out on that soon. Uh, details, uh, not quite worked out yet, but yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, I look forward to hearing more about that when it's ready. Um, so, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And there are many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. There be podcasts on our favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Lachlan Fleetwood, author of Science on the Roof of the World, Empire, and the Remaking of the Himalaya. But before then, thank you so much, Kaveh, for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.